Last week we read in Romans 15.4 that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. And Paul was referring to the spiritual value Christians can gain from the Old Testament. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's important to remember because today we're approaching the final section of the book of Romans, uh, the part that's the most easily overlooked. Romans, uh, though a masterful theological work, is still a letter. It was written as a letter to people. And from verses 14 of chapter 15 to the end of the letter, Paul is moving into the area of personal communication, uh, his feelings, his plans, uh, his greetings. And compared to the, the weighty theological themes of the first eight chapters, the human condition, God's righteousness, justification by faith, sanctification, uh, his powerful discussion of the Jewish question and divine election in chapters 9 through 11, or his excellent advice for living the Christian life in the church and in the world in chapters 12 through 14, this last part seems less important somehow to people, less weighty, uh, less impressive. It's the kind of section most people would skip over pretty rapidly if they're just reading through their Bible or uh, just briskly kind of pass it by on the way to 1 Corinthians. But the advantage of the personal areas of Scripture in these letters, that's why most of the New Testament is letters, should not be overlooked. And you shouldn't hurry through them because there's a lot of value here. Here we see the man, and if you want to mature as a Christian, it is good to be taught by a godly man, but it's even better to see his life uh, as well. And those personal sections are the way we can spend time with an apostle uh, as a man. The man, uh, he's not just any man, he's one of those very few men that was called by Christ to be an apostle, a revealer of divine truth, the highest authority in all the world in the church, in all matters of faith. And since the Bible says to imitate the faith in the life of those that are further along the narrow path than ourselves, it is well to spend time here with Paul the man, his wisdom, his humility, his tact, his approach to life, his passion for God. You can pick up a lot of good things here. So let's see how he brings his letter to a close. And he he begins here in verse 14 with words of encouragement and praise for the Roman Christians. He says, verse 14, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Notice he calls them brethren. He's been focusing on their weaknesses earlier, these areas that need improvement. Now he's focusing on their virtues, and they're very real. It was actually a pretty strong church and pretty healthy, and things were going well. They just needed a few reminders. He has admonished their faults, but he's actually very pleased, and that really comes through here. And it's always good to say the positives, is it not? When there's any criticism to be brought forth, to uh, focus on the good as well. It's a good principle for living. He mentions three things here. They are full of goodness, we could say kindness, filled with all knowledge. I have to think he means they have a firm grasp in the truth, the gospel of Christ and the way they were living it out. And third, he says they are able to admonish one another. The NIV says competent to instruct one another. They have the capacity and the knowledge and the goodness to help each other in living the Christian life. That is a healthy church when that's going on. That's what church is really supposed to be all about. Mutual support and accountability and words of wisdom and words of warning and spiritual progress in community. That's what the church is. It's the best way 
Solo spirituality is a recipe for self-deception because we need each other. And it's been designed by God that way. That's why there's a church. That's why Jesus instituted the church. That's why there, there are gifts that differ according to the giving of the Holy Spirit as, as he determines so that we can minister them to one another. To be a solo Christian is to be lacking seriously in the things that God wants you to have. That third phrase, able to admonish one another, was the basis for the whole biblical counseling movement back in the 1970s. Jay Adams saw the fruitless and destructive inroads that psychology was making into the church, and of course it's much worse today than it was in 1970. But his book, Competent to Counsel, the words that in the title actually come from verse 14 here, competent to counsel, able to admonish, or the capacity to do that. That really started that whole movement. It, it's called neuthetic counseling, which sounds like a really fancy word, but it's just the Greek word here in verse 14 for admonish, uh, neuthetain, neuthetic. The word able or competent, if you have an NIV, is dunamis, which is the Greek word for power or capacity. We get our word, you may know what word we get from dunamis. Dynamite, yeah, it's a powerful thing. It's a great capacity. It says you have a capacity, a power to admonish, instruct one another, to help one another. Um, Jay Adams' point, and it's Paul's too, is that Christians are able to solve the problems of living through faith and the Word of God working together, which is, the Bible says the Word of God is what? Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart some people say, well, that doesn't work. The Bible's not sophisticated enough. That's not true. It doesn't work for those who don't want it to. And they don't want that sword cutting deep and revealing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But people that are open to what God wants can have substantial transformation in their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. Churches have plenty of um, people in them that don't want to have that word cutting. But for those who want it, who want God more than anything else in life. There is a power to instruct and give direction in the church with the scriptures. Kindness, knowledge, and the power to instruct. That's what Paul found in the church in Rome. And that's what we'll have here if we don't just sit still and we keep progressing spiritually and maturing. That's what will happen. Have you ever wondered how Christians survived life's problems for 19 centuries before Freud came along? Have you ever wondered? What did they do? Oh, I just always assumed they suffered miserably and never got to solve any of their problems because how could they have understanding without psychology? I mean, that's not true. They, they had substantial success. I think a lot of people either don't ask that question to themselves or they just assume that they suffered endlessly because they were trapped by, with no escape by their life and their experiences and all those things because they didn't know about you know, this and that therapy and all that stuff doomed to unhappiness because they did not have the key of human wisdom. But you know what? They had something better than that. They had a belief, a faith, which means a trust in the living God and in the ways he reveals himself to us. They found radical transformation, power in Christ himself and in the spirit that makes the scriptures come alive. See, the scriptures aren't, you can't ever call this a dead letter thing. Because God makes it alive, see? It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the scripture. So to lean on God for all your needs and to have him shape your desires is a means of incredible potential for change. And it works. 
It really does work. Don't turn to the world and the world's wisdom when you have something much greater at your fingertips. There's a remarkable passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, I mean, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. It's a warning, but it contains within it a wonderful truth. And here's the warning. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the warning part. Do not be deceived, as many people are, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. good news is the next verse, verse 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Did you catch that last part? Such were some of you, but you were washed. Some of you, he says, were criminals. Some of you were perverted. Some of you were caught up in addictive sin. Some of you were drunkards. He says, but not anymore. Not anymore. You were washed, you were sanctified, set apart, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Change is not only available, it is abundantly supplied to those who seek it in Jesus. That is a promise of Scripture, and there are gazillions of people in the world that can bear testimony to the truth of that. I don't know how many gazillions it has been. It's a lot. Paul was a big believer in the ability of men and women to change through Christ. After all, he experienced the radical change himself. He moved not simply from Judaism to Christianity. Oh, you know, I think Christianity is more true. I think I'll be a Christian. No, he made a radical change in his life. He, he went from being a hater to a lover, from a killer to a giver of life, a healer, from a legalist, religionist to a man set free in the love of God. Radical transformation. Where did that change come from? What, what power was involved? How did, how did that happen? By the grace of God. By the grace of God. Romans 15, 15. I have written to you very boldly on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. Paul was who he was by the grace of God. The gift of God. The choice of God. The action of God on his behalf. What did God do? He made Paul, verse 16 says, to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now the subject in verse 15 is still change. God had changed Paul. Now he in his role of minister, which was given to him by God, reminds them of things pertaining to sound thinking and right living. He says, I have written boldly to you on some points. And he certainly has. It's almost an apology since they're doing pretty well and since he'd not been there in person. But it is his position that allows him to be bold. He is, after all, the apostle to the Gentiles. And it's really not a lot of new stuff. It's reminders. Reminders. That's what a lot of preaching and teaching and admonishing is. It's just remembering. Reminding. Don't we need to be reminded? Anybody here need to be reminded? I do. <laughs> you can have all this theology and all this knowledge and stuff, but you know what? When life creeps in, and kind of overwhelms you as you move through life and you get kind of pulled over here or tugged over here or you slip a little here and you slide a little there. Our thinking can become muddled and our, our zeal can lag and our routine can make wonders less thrilling 
because despite all that has been granted to us in salvation, we still have sin in us. And we still daily are engaged and involved with a very lost world. And it has its doleful effects on us. And God is ordained by his love and his mercy and his grace in the church and through his ministers and through other believers to be agents of remembering and reminding. That's why it's one of the reasons we should come here on Sunday mornings and be involved in our own personal Bible study and group activities. The Roman Christians needed to remember some things, that's all. And so do we. Same kind of thing. I wish I could find it. I couldn't find it this week because I'd read just a few weeks ago a wonderful paragraph, way more eloquent than I could ever say it. But somebody was saying how they didn't remember one sermon they had ever heard in their whole Christian life. They couldn't remember one sermon. And they rem but the point was that, so somebody would say, well, that means it's meaningless to listen to sermons because you can't remember them, right? They said, no, because at the time, it brought you back from where you were slipping or sliding or moving in a circle. It reminded you, and, it, and, and that's all it needed to do. Actually, the Word of God becomes a part of you way more than you think. You can't say, well, I can't remember the points of that sermon. It's already working its way into you, the Word of God, as it's taught and as you hear. And you're becoming changed already through it. I mean, it just happens. Whether you remember the details of the points or not, it, it is accruing to you, and the Holy Spirit is planting those things in your heart, and you're starting to change in your thinking and all those kind of things. It's happening anyway. And so by way of reminder, Paul says he's writing to them. One of the things we need to be reminded of, and one of the ways salvation dramatically changes us, is that we develop a God-centered view of life. That is, we realize that we are not the center of things, as Amy always says. It's not about us. And um, she said that again in Sunday school this morning. It's not about us, and she's right. It's about the Lord. And we actually find in our hearts an agreement with the idea that God matters more than we do. But sometimes we need to be reminded about that. Right? Because other things crowd their way in. His will more than our will. The idea that life is a gift and He is the giver. And whatever we are and have belongs to Him because He's the center of all things, not us. And Paul really exemplifies that uh, as a man. He was religious, extremely religious, before he knew Christ, but his religion was a man-made one. God merely being used to give weight to human traditions and ideas. Christ set him free. And he lived in that freedom. Jesus said what? The, he who sins is a slave of sin. But if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Paul was a free man. He knew it. True freedom is to fulfill your place in God's creation, the way he designed it, in his plan, as he intended, that's real freedom. To be what you're supposed to be. If you look at verse 16, you can see some very interesting language. He says, The grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's a really interesting thing. You don't see the word priest very often in the New Testament in a positive way. Not very often. He's describing the ministry he's been given, but his language, describing his work as a missionary, is made to sound like the work of a priest in the temple. And it's very usual for Paul to speak this way. But the imagery is very beautiful. 
Picture in your mind the priest in the temple with all of his ornamental wear and everything offering up on the altar. Well, it might be a blood sacrifice on the altar. It could be a grain offering or a drink offering as they did the different kinds of sacrifices. But offering something up to God, incense that burned and ascended up to heaven to represent the prayers of the saints. And that smoke ascending from either the sacrifice or the incense as a pleasing aroma to God, the worship of God, because it's offered in faith and obedience. And the language in verse 16 in some ways echoes Numbers chapter 8 where Aaron, the first priest, the first high priest in the Jewish system, it says, shall present the Levites, those were the people that were supposed to do the Lord's temple work, shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel that they may be qualified to perform the service of the Lord. And probably more likely, because Paul quotes Isaiah so much in Romans, he might have in mind here Isaiah 66.20, where speaking of the end of the age and how all the peoples are going to be um, streaming to Israel as the, as the center of the world because that's where Christ's kingdom will be. It says, this is the very end of the book of Isaiah after all that wonderful stuff about Christ. It says, Then they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. Now, they're not going to have to turn people into grain. It's a representational idea. They're going to bring them in worship. Look, look at all these people come to worship you, see. So proclaiming the gospel for Paul has been a kind of priestly service, not offering beets on the altar or grain or wine or anything like that, but nations of people and holding up before the Lord and saying, I've done this for you. I'm bringing this to you as, as, as worship. And they're acceptable, he says, because they're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The last words of verse 16 there. The Holy Spirit has sanctified those people and set them apart for God's kingdom. So take note, all of you, especially those of you in leadership, the elders and you other folks are doing ministry. Ministry is worship. It's an offering to God of all those we've shared with and taught and led by the way. Dads and moms, your family, discipling your family and leading them in the ways of the Lord is worship. And you bring them before the Lord and offer them to Him. What a wonderful concept. What a great privilege to be in that position. And I think the principle applies to every Christian that lives their life to the glory of God. Your life is worship. It's a kind of priestly worship where you're offering up the sacrifices of the things you do to the Lord. That's how truly God-centered all of this is. All of your life is like an act of worship in a temple. So when Paul thought about his efforts to reach the Gentiles and the traveling and, and, and the hunger and, and the prisons and the beatings and the churches he planted and the lives that were changed, it was all an act of worship. Offering something to God to give God joy. To me, that adds even more meaning to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, a true sacrifice. You know, in the Old Testament, when they sacrificed animals, did they sacrifice their rotten animals, the, the old ones that couldn't pull the plow anymore. You know what? I think we'll bring this one because uh, this one is sick. <laughs> they actually did do that sometimes. And God blasted them for that. They were supposed to bring their very best animal. Now if you think about that, 
well, I'm not going to get into that because that's a whole other area. But just as a side note, if you think about that, if you're a, 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 a breeder of animals for a farm or a ranch or whatever, and you sacrifice your best, what are you doing? You're tossing out good genes, right? You're trusting that God is going to cause good growth and betterment in your flocks by throwing away, in a sense, the best of your breed, right? Those, those are the animals you keep, right? To breed better animals, the best. And the best were the ones they sacrificed. When you get to the end of the Old Testament and you find them bringing the lame animals and the sick animals and the whatever they don't need anymore, that's one kind of worship, a kind that God finds detestable. But to bring the best, well, that pleases him. And it's trusting him to bless your endeavors in other ways. What a wonderful gift Paul could offer to the Lord. And he doesn't see it as any kind of great virtue on his part at all. It all stems from God's grace operating in his life. That's why he says it was the grace given to me. So he says in verse 17, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, he does not speak of things he has accomplished through Christ. He only speaks of things that Christ has accomplished through him. You see the difference? Here we get an excellent view of Christian humility. Not a fake kind of humility. Well, you know, I did all these wonderful things, but it really wasn't me. It was really God, you know. You know how people can be like that. But he's serious. It, it, his humility is born of a true understanding of how it is that we accomplish anything in this world for the Lord. By human standards, literally, you could not be more successful than the Apostle Paul in terms of what he wanted to accomplish. Not in terms of wealth and position and power, but exactly the way he wanted to be successful, which was to influence the world for Christ. You couldn't be more successful than he was. You couldn't be. Historians who talk about who the most influential people in history are or were, in history, nearly all of them put Paul in the top ten people of all time, the most influential people. Many put him in the top three. Some put him on the top. Some people say that Paul is, historians say that Paul is the most influential human being in history. And if you think about it, you can understand why. He is the individual most responsible for Christianity becoming a global religion. His theology shaped more than half of the world's understanding of religion and way beyond religion when you get into moral philosophy and even politics and all those kind of things, the letters of Paul. Even in his lifetime, he was a phenomenally successful church planter. Look at these places, verse 19, from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Well, that roundabout includes major areas, provinces, cities, in places like Syria, Cilicia, Cyprus, Galatia, Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, and that's just what he mentions here. After Romans, he's heading on out. He's, I'm on the way to Spain. He's going to say that in just a few paragraphs from here. I'm moving on. Distance-wise, we're talking about 1,400 miles of influence. 
where the gospel was preached and churches planted. In a day when travel was on foot or donkey in very treacherous conditions. Paul was strategic as well. He started churches in places that were central communication links in different Roman provinces so that when church was planted there, it could easily go out on the highways and the byways and all, this, all the commercial trading places. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was strategic planning. And then you look at Paul's energy, you look at his intellect, you look at his endurance, you look at his leadership skills. He could be a man with much to boast of. But he knew better than that. What does he say? Verse 17, In Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Christ through me is the truth of it. And Paul knew that. Lots of people have energy and intellect and endurance and leadership skills. But those things in themselves can't produce spiritual fruit. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. So Paul knew exactly where his success came from. From the triune God, the great God. Has anyone noticed how Trinitarian these passages are like this? Verse 16, a minister of Christ Jesus ministering the gospel of God sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus, things pertaining to God. Verse 18, Christ through me. Verse 19, in the power of the Spirit, God, Christ, Spirit, God, Christ, Spirit. You see, a historian cannot see or understand the power of God. A historian cannot understand the gospel of God. A historian cannot understand Christ through me, the power of the Holy Spirit. They credit Paul. What an innovative shaper of theology. What a brilliant thinker. Well, where did he get his theology? He says he got it from God. How did these churches grow? How did this strange Jewish man walk into a pagan city and preach a message and a bunch of people believe him and start a little church and he goes on to the next place and that little church starts other churches and other churches and, and within a couple hundred years an empire is overthrown. How did that happen? Well, Paul was just a really brilliant guy. He was very influential. No, that's the power of God. Like, he couldn't do that. In fact, we know from the scripture that because of Paul's unique gifts and his prominent place in church history that God gave him physical afflictions, suffering, to keep him from being arrogant. He says that. A man who could heal other people of every condition that they had and suffered terribly himself. But even that was okay as long as it served God's purposes. Listen to his own words on the subject. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the things that God had revealed to him, the experiences that he'd had spiritually, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, 
with difficulties. What a list. He just keeps going on, you know. You can imagine what's going through his mind as he writes each of those things, his experiences. Weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong, he said. When I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because of the power of Christ within. He can use any vessel that will serve him, even a cracked one. So never, never sell God short in how he can use you, the changes he can make in your life. So well, I'm not special. I'm just, I'm just, just what? Just chosen before the foundation of the world to be in Christ? Just drawn from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light of his beloved son? Just a child of God by the grace of God? Just to be granted the Holy Spirit as a pledge of your inheritance and called to serve God in the world? Just that? Is that what we're just saying? Because that's true of every Christian. Keep God at the center of your affections and your commitment and there are no limits on what he can do through you. It is true. You can do amazing things for him right where you are and any place he takes you through the power of Christ and the Spirit within you. That's true. How? How does that happen? Just like we said, probably the greatest sentence in the Old Testament, Zechariah 4.6, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. That's how it's done. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for Paul's life and what a great example of him. The great persecutor of the church transformed dramatically by the grace of God to be a world changer. Let us have the confidence of the power of the Spirit in our own lives where we need to make those changes, Lord. Whether our, wherever our situation is, how we need to be living for you, how we need to be doing your work your way, not our own way. We need grace. We pray for it. In Jesus' name, amen.